Welcome to Chit Chat Money. This is our Thursday deep dive interview where we interview an analyst covering a single stock. And today we're talking about IAC or Interactive Corp with Ramnik Kundra. Um, if you follow him on Twitter, you might be familiar with some of his work, but it was really good to talk to him. He follows IAC pretty closely and he has a bit of a unique perspective on markets being that he invests in India as well. Did you have any highlights um, from the interview? I think the highlight was looking at everything from a a balanced point of view where you got to look at the assets and kind of value yourself, but also look at the assets from the perspective of how management would look at them from their historical track record and how they've done things in the past. So you kind of got to look at it through their lens. Okay. They like to spin off things. They like to roll up a bunch of assets within these different industries. Okay. How could that uh play into the future uh, it's just looking at IAC's history and kind of saying okay they have these current assets what can they do with them today and understanding that IAC likes to acquire I guess sticky or hairy assets that might not look perfect at the time uh but yeah all around good interview we cover the majority of what IAC owns all right. And before we get to the interview, we want to talk about our friends our exclusive partner seven investing you've heard us talk about them before if you uh, are interested and you already know uh, what they provide, use that code money, you get $100 off the annual. But if you don't, they provide seven recommendations each month. They've now accumulated recommendations on more than 200 companies. So there's plenty of research. They're very thorough recs as well. And then on top of it, it's not just recommend and leave you to it. They are really collaborative. And I don't want to say hold your hand, but they constantly update and they have meetings each month where you can ask them questions. They have, a, is it a Discord channel? Yeah, they have a Discord channel. I'm looking at their recommendations right now. They have their latest best buys uh, that they update in the middle of the month each month to kind of help you out of, all right, of their 200 plus reports, which ones that we've covered before do we think are the best buys today? We won't spoil the picks, but they have a, a big tech company. We got a space economy company, a few cybersecurity ones, some software, uh, financial services a good mix of things. And if you like, really, I mean, the seven investing reports, um, they're for all types of investors. So you might not like the coverage from a certain area, or it's not your area that you want to invest in, but I'm sure some of it is because they just have a good plethora of all covering all sorts of areas of the market. All right. Well, once again, use our code money at checkout, you get a hundred dollars off your annual order. Uh, and without further ado, here's our interview with Ramnik Kundra. Welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Ryan and Brett are also general partners at Arch Capital, and Arch Capital may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan or Brett or any other podcast guests is not formal advice or recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode. Welcome to the show. We are joined today by Ramnik Kundra. He's a fund manager at Taurus Tax Shield Fund. We got connected through Twitter, I think, like most of our guests. And today we're talking about IAC, but maybe before we get into it, for listeners that aren't familiar with you, could you give maybe some some of your background and, and maybe a little bit of your investing style? So uh, my background in investing is basically like I started in uh, 2014. 
in October. That was my the my, my first investment uh, was in Under Armour. Uh, when I bought the stock, the stock zoomed within six months, and I was like, I can do this. And the how I got into it was uh, because I read the Intelligent Investor. Uh, and that was through one of the uh, documentaries uh, uh, that I watched on uh, Warren Buffett on Netflix, where he mentioned the book and I read the book and I read it again. And within 10 days, I read the book twice and uh, bought my first talk. And uh, I thought I have found uh, what I want to do. And then the second stock that I bought was Chesapeake Energy that went down 90%. So I thought it wasn't that easy as well. Uh, so that's it. That's how I started. And, uh, you know, it's been a great journey since then. And in uh, 2018, I started tweeting about my my stocks and my philosophy and my investing style. And uh, Bluegrass Cap, shout out to him. Uh, he basically did a, 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 the, an FF for me. And uh, that's how kind of the, the followers, number of followers kind of exploded on Twitter. Uh, and uh, I'm really grateful to him uh, because uh, I learned a lot from, from him as well. And uh, that's it. Uh, the, the, well, the, I follow like a timeless, uh, uh, you know, timeless principles of uh, value investing. Uh, margin of safety is really important in what I do. And uh, usually try to buy businesses uh, which have good uh, terminal growth. Uh, and uh, uh, like sustainable terminal values. Uh, that's it. That's what I'm trying to do. Okay, let's let's talk about his uh, IAC and maybe start with the history of the business. How did it get to where it is today? And then follow-up question, how did you discover it as an investment? So roll-up spin-offs and uh, anti-conglomerate strategy, right? That's what describes... I see. And uh, I discovered it uh, uh, because I was in an investment in uh, charter communication. And uh, I got to figure out that uh, John Malone and Barry Diller uh, were friends. And then they had a business feud. And, uh, you know, while reading about like Liberty Ventures, Liberty Ventures history and Liberty Ventures basically was a combination of assets uh, uh, of lending tree and uh, a little bit, a bit of Expedia in it and uh, you know some of the other assets that were like taken from IAC. SN was also in there at one point of time. Uh, so yeah, uh, while reading about it, I got to know about IAC and I got to know about Barry Diller and since then got really like into it and uh, always thought like in 2016 that the stock was in uh, like expensive but like whenever i thought it was expensive it kind of ripped uh, <laughs> again and again and again and in 2018 i ended up buying the stock and uh, since then i've been a holder a shareholder painfully this year but uh, it has done still well uh, for me personally and uh, so like Things go back to like 1986 when today's IAC was basically set up as a Silver King broadcasting company. You know, within two years, it acquired about like 11 stations for uh, $220 million for 
all of them combined at that time. And later in 1995, Barry Diller took over Silver King from Liberty Media, which was the largest investor uh, in, uh, in in Silver Silver King Broadcasting Company. Uh, it is it was owned by John alone, and uh, you know it changed its name to HSN. And Diller wanted to basically build a sort of a platform of companies that could evolve with new media, including the internet in 1995. And internet was a new thing. And Diller was, wants to, wanted to get on this, hop on this like new, new uh, paradigm. Uh, so he wanted to use all these stations basically as the foundation uh, to launch his, uh, uh, his, his, uh, his company. And, uh, so he acquired like 80% of the stake in uh, HSN. And then uh, at the same time, he acquired, uh, you know, Savoy Pictures for pennies on the dollar. It was a failed film studio. And uh, uh, so he, he was doing this media thing. And then he wanted to be in the internet uh, at the same time. So even at that time, uh, film studio business was considered very risky. Uh, and, uh, you know, but when he learned that movie studio is still a horrible business and it's still very unpredictable business, uh, once again, after owning Savoy Pictures, he showed flexibility and uh, acquired a different kind of asset, uh, an online ticketing business called Ticketmaster. And when they started focusing on internet properties, and then he understood the, the unit economics part of Ticketmaster, uh, then they changed their name from HSN to USA Interactive to build like interactive ecosystem of companies. Uh, and uh, and later that became Interactive Corp, which is today's IAC. And they didn't stop in the, the middle. They acquired like hotels.com, they acquired hotwire.com, they acquired anyway.com. And then they bundled these travel properties and spun it off as Expedia. Right in uh, in about like early 2000, I think it was 2004, 2003, 2004, uh, and uh, and Expedia really shaped the firm strategy as it is today, and gave Diller a lot of confidence. And I think he once talked about it as well in one of the like old interviews. And then it acquired properties, and you know, uh, and Expedia success basically when it shaped it, and then uh, it acquired like TripAdvisor, which was a spin-off along with HSN and LendingTree, which they bought in early two thousands. That all became part of like Liberty Ventures, which uh, is a Malone venture, and that was converted into GCI Liberty, which was uh, recently in I think twenty twenty one. Uh, changed uh, like uh, merged into Liberty Broadband, which is a large owner of Charter Communications. So that's how it's tied, basically. Uh, that's how I started with IAC. And uh, basically, when you know, with all these travel property acquisitions during the late '90s and early 2000s, they had acquired Match Group as well. Uh, and I think the acquisition was done in like 1998 it was called match.com at the time and i think it was in 1998 99 uh, that they acquired it when internet speeds and penetrations and acceptance of the internet to have it in every home basically accelerated they used the match group uh, to uh, and and whatever they had learned from uh, you know running match.com to acquire nearly 
all the dating websites that were coming up and that were important at the time. In 2011, they bought Meetit. Later, they bought Tinder. Then they spun, spun it off all as Match Group. It's basically the same playbook what they did with Expedia with all the travel websites. Uh, so it's it's basically how the spin-off playbook, I would say, uh, was kind of born. All right. Yeah, it's good over here. And yes, Match Group has been their most, well, their largest uh, spinoff. Uh, so it's one of the most important for their long-term returns. But we're going to get into the businesses. But generally, as a shareholder, what are your thoughts on the spinoff strategy? Do you like the flexibility as a shareholder or are there any downsides there? I mean, uh, so like that's one primary driver, right? You look at Berkshire, uh, the greatest holding corporation of all time from uh, a long-term track record point of view, right? And that thing is always trading for less than some of the parts because capital is flowing within the companies. And uh, Buffett argues that the sum is worth more than the parts in Berkshire case. But I doubt if you spin off parts such as no Burlington, Northern Santa Fe, and those things would won't sell, uh, won't sell for, uh, you know, 25x gap price to earning ratios. And Berkshire really uh, never trades at 25x PE ratio. So still there's a merit in the approach as it makes the structure more most resilient, but even, even if it is not the most optimal structure, so Buffett has clearly indicated, you know, Berkshire is run for maximum resilience rather than maximum uh, optimization, basically. So Barry Diller and Joy Levin understood that very well. They had studied, you know, conglomerate structures. You can tell uh, how, how they talk within, like in many interviews. So they like to own and nurture a business until it can fly on its own and keep doing this VC type investing uh, with much better strike rate than even the most successful VCs, right? And they don't necessarily go after moats. Uh, they go after businesses that definitely have good free cash flow potential and may not have moats uh, or like huge competitive advantages from terminal standpoint. If you go to a website owner that makes like $100,000 a month, in revenue and ask them what their moat is, uh, they would probably look at you dumbfounded regardless of the fact, uh, you know, whether they have the moat or not. So, so like IAC likes to go after such businesses which have like cash flow potential and pay quite low price for them because uh, a lot of us don't understand like those metrics and they just want liquidity of what, what public markets could offer. So I like this sort of value investing approach, which kind of aligns with my own. Um, uh, and uh, even when you are investing in business that may or may not be profitable at, at the time you acquire, acquire them cheaply or re uh, reasonably if you can. And so I'll give you an example of ask.com. Uh, you know, they, they, they own ask.com. Ask Jeeves was the parent company. And uh, they were doing about like $260 million in revenue and growing more than 40%. But IAC paid 21 times gap earnings for the thing. Mm -hmm. Can you imagine someone paying 40, uh, 21x gap PE for a gap EPS for, for a company growing? 
40% year over year. That yeah. doesn't happen anymore. I mean, we were talking about price to sales of 100x on Snowflake, uh, you know, just last year. So they reached a point quickly where they did $300 million in earnings on an asset that they acquired for $1.8 billion and started using their stock and cash flow to fund other consumer internet acquisitions, including the dating ones. Um, I guess one of, one of the other, do, do you have anything else on the spinoffs? Uh, no. So, I mean, that's where the strategy is basically born. Uh, you know, uh, like it's just, it's just foam. Uh, this is a company that we are talking about. This is the management that we are talking about. Uh, you know, uh, the spin-off strategy that I'm talking about. So, uh, this is the management that you would want to basically bet on. And they want to get the maximum out of the asset uh, that they can. And more than what they had paid for it including using debt, stock, cash combination, and it pays out for itself. Because eventually business businesses exist. Uh, we forget that a lot of time businesses exist to generate cash flow. Um, so I guess one of their businesses now is Dot Dash Meredith. And I think we're basically just going to go through a bunch of their different uh, portfolio companies and kind of take them one by one. So let's start with Dot Dash Meredith. Right now, pro forma revenue is down around fifteen to twenty percent this year. Do you think this can reverse? And what sort of profitability do you think Dot Dash Meredith could have if things normalize? So I basically looked at like Meredith's statements uh, when IIC acquired them. I skimmed through them. The overall business had 20% EBITDA margins, including low low margins for uh, their print business, right? And uh, but the management in one of the con calls said that more than 65% of their EBITDA uh, comes from digital properties, you know, and uh, which was 260 dollars at the time, and accounts for more. Th- so that make means basically digital properties are doing about. Uh, 36% EBITDA margins. And uh, uh, I think with operational improvements, including the improvements in uh, uh, loading time for the websites uh, that basically Joe 11 talked about, uh, I think they will attract more users. The management guided to $450 million in EBITDA at the time of the acquisition. I think it was just the sum of DotDash and Meredith's EBITDA rather than like, uh, you know, they were like, uh, lowballing the stuff but they didn't know the the bubble would burst and the recession would be here and uh, now uh, one one year forward we are looking at a, gu- a revised uh, guidance of 300 million dollars which is one which is like one third lower than what we were expecting but talking about margins i like to assume like they could go back uh, to be even better because isc has previously showed cost discipline during these times and uh, whenever uh, the traffic is uh, better and the advertising is back and we have more visibility i think i think things can go back pretty uh, like up pretty quickly uh, from here what are, what are the assets though i think listeners will recognize them so they might be confused on what dot dash merit is but what are some of the assets that both of these units own just so people can understand what sort of uh websites that uh, ic is super interested in so one of the assets that they have is uh, uh, 
better homes and gardens. Uh, and one of the assets is the spruce that they have. These were all part of uh, the time acquisition that they did. Uh, so, I mean, these are some of the popular ones. Uh, they have uh, uh, one called health.com. Uh, is Investopedia in there? Uh, yeah, yeah, Investopedia is part of DotDash. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And what do you, so what are your thoughts about their, they talk about the, how they can get double kind of the ad efficiency with these Meredith properties. Do you see any reason why that wouldn't be the case or just because the sites they're acquiring are so similar? Do you think that, you know, like the CPG strategy, the, uh, the, you know, the referral stuff that they do, that's really helpful. Do you think that, is there any reason that wouldn't, you know, be the case as we kind of get out of this recessionary environment on advertising? So I think hard part would be because uh, uh, like it's it's very hard to actually make the case that, uh, you know, uh, they would have any trouble because Joey Levin at the time said that like, you know, a, a normal website uh, of theirs, like Investopedia takes about three, four seconds to download. And uh, this uh, these websites from Meredith, which have like even more uh, traffic, like 2x, 3x time, uh, 3x the profit, uh, like, uh, you know, uh, uh, visitors uh, still have loading times of about 23 seconds, 24 seconds. And that is just crazy. Uh, so they just improved the, and they he said that uh, it's just very, very easy for us to change that. And uh, if they can do that, and if they can do that without harming uh, the user experience, I, I don't see any reason, uh, you know, why the ad loads uh, would have problem for them. Even with less ad loads, they could command like higher CPMs uh, or CPCs, in my opinion. Uh, but but there there is definitely a, a, a range of outcome can be produced where you have things going, uh, uh, you know, south, uh, in which case, uh, you know, uh, which, which are pretty much unknowable at the time, at uh, right now. But uh, a recession can prove out in very different ways than we can imagine. Uh, so I don't really have a good answer for it. Uh, but I don't see why things cannot get back very quickly. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Right. Okay. And follow up here, or not follow up, next topic, it'd be Angie. This is the... I don't know, the thorn maybe in the side of a lot of IAC investors. This is the Just for reference, they own like 85% of this thing, but the rest is publicly traded so we can see what it is trading at in the public markets and it's done quite poorly. I guess as someone who owns IAC and 
and correct me if I'm wrong, doesn't own Angie. How do you value Angie? What do you think about this when you're, you know, as the shareholder of the conglomerate company? Well, uh, the smart thing is that you don't, right? You don't value Angie. <laughs> yeah, you value it at zero. I, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I don't I don't have strong views on the, the market uh, that it caters. I just think that this they have still been unable to find the value proposition for their service providers and even the ultimate consumers. So when I, when I stayed, I was living in New York, uh, someone just like, uh, you know, told me like Handy is a service. And, and I, you know, called uh, once the guy uh, from Handy and they offered me a discount and they did like great service for like $70. Like the whole house was clean and everything. But at the same time, next time I just called the guy. Yeah. Uh, so like it's anecdotal as well. It's good thing that I never fell for the Angie, <laughs> Angie narrative. Uh, but at the same time, they they it's been about like two two and a half years now. They introduced their fixed price offerings, uh, where the customer would know upfront what he has to pay or she has to pay. Uh, and a service provider has to provide the service in a given amount of time. And that's uh, not had much traction. Uh, it was launched with much fanfare, but hasn't had much traction. So I don't think anyone except the management here is competent enough to value it. Uh, there may be a few smart people who could do it. I just can't. So I just leave it alone. Uh, could you see them buying it back in full? Again, this is speculation, buying it back in full at these lower prices, take that whatever 15% left and just make it a part of the IAC so it's not publicly traded anymore? I think I think if they do that, they're going to have even a lower stock price mm. because, uh, because people already hate Angie a lot and they're like, they do. <laughs> you see Angie and you don't see anything else in the market right now <laughs> at this price. Uh, so it's it's a tricky situation. Uh, I don't think they are going to take it private and uh, wreck their stock even uh, further. It's already down like 67, 70%. Uh, I think that's enough of beating. I think that's already embarrassing for this kind of management. And if I'm not mistaken, Joey Levin just replaced the CEO of Angie, correct? Yeah. Okay. And is he just taking over like, operations there himself yes and i don't uh i don't think it's like a, a, a an offensive kind of a move i just yeah. think it's very chaotic kind of a move because this guy was appointed last year uh and uh, that's just horrible how things yeah. have turned out at angie <laughs> i mean i'm laughing it's one of my my uh good positions uh but like <laughs> It's just being a being a clown show. Yeah, so that's that's probably the, the maybe their worst asset and one of the best ones, Ryan. I don't know. We want to talk about Turo because that, maybe yeah. that's a bit more optimistic here. Yeah, I think this is one people are probably or investors are probably a little more excited about. So they own roughly thirty five percent of Turo. What do you think? I guess broadly, what do you think of Turo? And then what do you think could be the upside if if Turo goes public? So I think the best time to look at total addressable market for various sustainable platforms with good value propositions like that of Turo's is actually today than, than it was in 2021. People really? were 
using EV to TAM and uh, you know EV to sales and those kind of multiples. I think now is the time where you go on this kind of offense when uh, you know things like uh, Google and Amazon are fa falling like more than ten percent a day, and uh, so this is probably you know capitulation that we saw like two days for two days straight. Uh, so yeah, anyway, uh, like for Turo, I think everyone in 2021 wanted to, uh, you know, uh, do the <laughs> EV to TAM thing. But uh, now everyone is just looking at PV ratios. And Turo is, Turo's uh, total addressable market, the TAM is very large. And uh, Turo is basically the world's largest car sharing marketplace where you can book a car you want. Uh, basically, as people call it, it's the Airbnb for cars. Uh, the, the management thinks its TAM is over $200 billion for trips over 30 miles, which uh, roughly is 25% of the total miles traveled, right? And uh, you have many options to choose from among many cars. They have about 100K uh, 100,000 hosts on their platform and 175,000 listings with last year's revenue uh, was something like uh, 390, <clears throat> $390 million or like something like $400 million. I, I don't remember it exactly, but I looked at it like eight, like six months ago. I don't remember it. The, the gross margins for Turo have also gone up every year since uh, 2019 from 15% now to about like 35% last year. And uh, uh, also they are growing, they, their operating margins are also inflecting upward, which is kind of surprising because uh, you look at all these uh, internet companies, uh, you know, burning cash and this thing is profitable and uh, makes me even like IC even more because uh, they are going after profitable stuff. And uh, still growing, like and 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 it's not like the top line is stalled or like they are under investing stuff like that. It's just like they don't have crazy sales and marketing uh, budget <laughs> like other internet companies, and they are being uh, very uh, smart about going after this market because they are kind of the only player, uh, large player in the market yeah. at the moment. Yeah, so, and I I'm booking a trip right now, and I gotta say that it. The, the platform's pretty sleek and it, it's intuitive and uh, I feel like everyone wants away from the rental car companies. So it kind of just has a good uh, product market fit. Yeah. And just back to the IAC part, they're holding it at about $250 million right now. I think part of the thesis for owning it today, look, we don't know when Turo's going to go public or if someone's going to acquire them or whatever, but I guess it's hard. Do you see this stake? Could it be worth a billion dollars? Could it be worth even more? I mean, is that part of your thesis for owning today or is it more of trust management? They'll do the right thing with this asset. Yeah. So, so if you own IAC, first of all, you have to trust the management. That's like the primary driver of this thing. Like I said, they don't invest in moats. They don't invest in, uh, they don't think about like terminal values of the business a lot. Uh, as you can see from the assets like Angie, and you can see from other assets that they own like in emerging uh, very, very small niche businesses and kind of boutique businesses that they like to own which generate cash flows. And uh, so Turo is basically 
rapidly growing uh, profitably like it's growing not only gross margin wise it's growing operating margin wise and it's growing like double and triple digits like the last i checked it grew it had grown like triple digits in in over two year time frame and uh, we still are in very early innings of this for this company and uh, ISE's take is about like 27% which they paid a little uh, uh, like 20 250 million dollars as you pointed out for that and i think that could be worth you know uh, far out not in this environment they, they are not going to ipo like people keep talking about it they're not going to ipo they're not stupid if they do that i'm going to sell ise like <laughs> in this environment but like they they would probably you know sell it like uh, how they sold Vimeo at the top, like, and that's like far out. And uh, ten years from now, five years from now, I think Turo would be in good place, and ISE's stake would be worth much more than two hundred fifty million dollars that they paid for it. And they'll have good IRR on it, I think, because Turo is already doing about like four hundred million dollars in revenue. What are your thoughts of them acquiring even more or the entire thing? Uh, since they have the cash to do it. Would that be a positive signal or do you think, I guess, again, it's just trusting management, but uh, any thoughts of that I think in this case, like in Angie's case, I said it would be a negative. Like in this case, it would be a positive because the asset is growing like crazy. And if the numbers, uh, I haven't looked at the most recent quarter or anything because I don't think they reported, but like, you know, if you have uh, this company growing like how it was growing from 2018 to 2020, or even a little less than that, like people are going to love this asset in this environment uh, because you could probably get it from the private players for much cheaper, private investors for much cheaper. Right. Yeah. If they, if they were able to, if they were able to take it public in 2021, 2020 timeframe that uh i think they would have got quite the premium on it just looking at that they were so uh they i know they did the s1 what right yeah it's poor timing right right when the market turned over right it was january i think if i'm getting that timeline correctly so right when the market turned over in 2021 or even later i can't if i'm not uh, or just right after kind of the the mania or yeah yeah again unless i'm getting the timeline right. they got one right right like they got vimeo absolutely right like they yeah Vimeo at $56, the thing traded at like $4, like a few days ago. Yeah. <laughs> they, uh, the market. Yeah. yeah. They, yeah, that was, that was, that was when SAS, right when SAS, that was kind of the peak of the SAS. Uh, we'll pay whatever we want for that. All right. So one of the interesting assets that maybe was unexpected that I see bought, but it's worked out really well so far has been MGM resorts. Um, not really in their typical, uh, area of expertise over the last few decades. But right now, it's a really important part of this business because the asset or their investment is worth approximately half of IAC's market cap as of this writing. Generally, what do you think of the partnership? Um, and uh, I guess, how, how wh- where do they go from here with the investment? Yeah, so MGM's public equity buy was an odd one uh, for many investors. <clears throat> but, uh, you know, as I said, these guys are value investors. They buy fear and uh, they are contrarian of sorts. Uh, they think of themselves as capital allocators rather than you know, uh, sticking to any kind of dogma. They are not dogmatic in any way. They can go after any opportunity that they want. You know. Uh, so during the depth of the 
covid panic in the markets uh, and uh, you know they bought mgm at uh, 4x pre covid ebitda so now i like the two reasons uh, one that you are value guys who bought the panic and even today you are up uh, on your investment after the drawdown that we have seen in the current market and two i like it because mgm has 50% ownership of bet mgm which is tapping into huge online betting and i gaming market uh and also mgm is one of the most profitable not not one of the most profitable but the most profitable collection of retail casino properties it has only 20 properties while caesars has 60 but mgm has 2 billion dollar of ebitda uh ebitda plus rent costs and uh, caesars has about 3.6 billion so with only one third of the properties mgm has more than half of the uh, profit of what caesars does and caesars is also efficiently operated uh, now so you see mgm uh, is well managed as it has about 3 out of you know five uh, most profitable vegas vegas assets uh uh including the cosmopolitan bellagio and mgm grand and it has 50% uh, share of uh, vegas gaming market uh in i gaming many companies like pen entertainment and draftkings are making progress but mgm has uh good distribution and they are trying to do it profitably they are also burning through a lot of cash but uh, that's a that's for a lot of growth as well so they are reaping benefits for burning that cash as well and uh, a lot of companies uh, you know like win resorts and other companies keep coming out and say they are doing stuff in i gaming and online sports betting but uh, you know <clears throat> you don't see a lot of moves from these companies in the market or making any kind of buzz in the market so like bed mgm and uh, draftkings and uh, pen these are quite uh, formidable uh, uh, competitors uh, all three of them but uh, i would say bed mgm is doing pretty good as they are growing like triple digits uh, uh, year over year uh, so <clears throat> also uh, you know uh, in in my view uh mgm also has uh, mgm china which is down quite a lot because of the uh, sentiment again uh, you know uh, mgm china uh, it's a separate stock that's listed i think on hong kong stock exchange and it's like down a lot uh, about like 80% uh, uh, because of the sentiment against china at the moment and uh, you know if even if you compress mgm's margins and uh, you get to a valuation of 18 times uh, free cash flow at the current uh, 34 35 that it trades at uh, so and and for for these properties which are uh, which are gambling properties and uh, sports betting properties which are uh, which have kind of lindy effect to them and uh, they would take more than twice and thrice to build in the current inflationary environment if you were to rebuild the whole stack of properties that they own these have high high terminal values and i think i think mgm if they get uh, the bet mgm part uh, operationally better uh, that would even do wonders uh, and it probably eventually spin it off uh, from mgm okay last 
sub, I guess maybe subsidiary that to talk about with the last portfolio company um, that I think is worth talking about is care.com. What are your thoughts around that business? It seems like it's been pretty successful. Do you think that can continue? Yeah, so care.com is uh, one of the uh, one of my favorite buys that they have done uh, because uh, primarily because uh, I had just started buying the stock and uh, you know they were already acquiring care.com at that point. So I see again uh, like value investors and like contrarian investors bought the panic uh, like they did with the uh, MGM when everything you know related to covid and uh, would be related to covid uh, headwinds was falling down like restaurants you know the casino resorts and hotels etc uh, you know is the same kind of buy so it was a special situation of sorts uh, so on care.com wall street journal basically published an article and uh, came out with a piece in 2019 i think early 2019 uh, questioning care.com's due diligence and background check processes where they found uh, a bunch of people and caretakers who were not uh, who who had not gone through proper background checks that uh, care had claimed that they do and as the company was implementing you know new oversight processes because of the case and because of the 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 uh, shareholder pressure iac grabbed care for 3x sales in the middle of the chaos so when i looked at the time of the iac's acquisition i remember that care had about like 70% gross margins and uh, you know they had about like 17% 18% uh, free cash flow margins so this was already a profitable company like Turo, like mgm so like like meredith and dot dash uh, all those kinds of like properties and on gap basis uh, gap uh, pe ratio basis basically like gap eps basis ISE bought a best in class pa- platform in care for 12 times gap earnings mm-hmm. right it's and and the the platform was kind of stagnating under the weight of the management and kind of undercapitalized by being public company and uh, uh, no one was able to like grow this thing uh, but iac thought like they could use their operational excellence and their uh, the the their uh, you know uh, capital uh, to uh, improve this business a lot so also the management at the at care at the time also owned about like 25 26% of the stock and i think over the next two years care grew more than 100% uh we'll see how things pan out over time but this is already a pla- like platform that is very very profitable and uh, i think going forward can do wonders for for uh, iac because this was acquired for 500 uh million dollars and this could be multiples of what you know uh the the multiples of what iac basically paid for it so we have like multiple levers in iac at the moment like you have meredith dot dash you have uh, uh, this uh, care.com you have turo these all things could be worth multiple billion dollars uh in themselves if ever it turns around uh you know you will have a home run and if you don't like 
ISE will do pretty well from here, in my opinion. Right. That leads to kind of the wrap up questions. You know, a big part of IC is management. Um, you already talked about how you have to trust them going forward. I mean, what do you think of Webin and the team today? I know Diller's kind of out of the picture more. He's kind of, you know, he's hanging in the background. Um, and I guess the other one, is a bear market a good thing for them being able to pick up some assets, maybe at a lower valuation? And I guess we don't need to go through some of the parts, but any sort of valuation reference, I guess, would be in this question as well, kind of to wrap things up. I like these guys. Uh, recently, Joe Levin said in an interview that uh, anything is possible for us. We can invest anywhere and we will, uh, depending on uh, whether it makes sense. Uh, Levin is a capital allocator, as I said, who applies timeless principles of value investing in doing deals. And they keep huge margin of safety when they uh, acquire any assets. So they don't have any problems that uh, usually most of the roll-ups over long term have. Usually a beer market, uh, I would say, has always served them well. Uh, this time, I dare say it is a bit different because in his letters, Levin said once or twice something like uh, private markets are crazy. And Diller in uh, one of the one or two interviews also echoed the same uh, uh, sentiment. And he said, uh, basically, private markets are going insane. And they have been saying that stuff since 2019. And if I remember correctly, in their letters and in their interviews, but didn't find anything in tech. Uh, they bought Meredith right before the bubble in tech popped where they could have made a better return. But uh, you can never tell when these bubbles will pop, right? I'm, I'm just happy that uh, uh, despite being a key player in the consumer internet space, uh, ISE never bought in the hype of SaaS and uh, consumer internet and uh, you know things selling for like 10x sales or 100x sales uh, even rather rather it sold vimeo at the top and uh, during the they basically sold vimeo during the euphoria i remember listening to levin's con call or maybe reading his letter in which he said something like while we don't uh, value things based on sales multiple but we find an appetite among some market participants uh, uh, to do so and uh, that was like such a great way to put things in perspective, how they think about things, because you don't really get management investing in internet and uh, saying these kind of stuff, uh, these kind of things. And uh, I think that was uh, like the most respectable home run uh, in hindsight. You want people like that basically running the businesses that you own. Uh, so I really like the management and uh, I would like them to do what they're doing and uh, they could actually raise capital in this environment uh, and uh, do some deals. Yeah, I think I, I think we echo that sentiment. Uh, last question, pre-mortem, and we, we try to ask this for all of our deep dive interviews. How could an investment in IAC go poorly? As uh, you said, uh, you guys said uh, rightly, uh, the, the the main part of investing in IAC is trusting the management, right? Like, and uh, you may go wrong at some point trusting just the people because it's not that people are just uh, people could turn out to be crooks, but at the same time, 
people could just lose talent uh, or they could just make bad judgment themselves and in turn you will suffer for their bad judgment because you trusted them so see these assets that ise own that we have talked about are not the rating agencies or paint companies and these are not these are not like old moti businesses these are businesses that you cannot underwrite uh being in business forever so the terminal value of these businesses is quite low if i were to guess but you are betting on the management that they keep the machine going and eventually find one or two match groups that work even better with the free cash flow they will generate from their investments and most likely today from meredith's and doordash's combination that could be possible but uh, you have to trust the management on this thing and uh, that's how uh, if the management makes a mistake you basically will suffer hugely uh, and dearly uh, for their mistake and they at this point they cannot even uh, uh, take even one punch basically so we are at that point okay well i think that's all the questions we have uh ramnik appreciate the time if people want to keep up with you uh and a twitter's a good place do you know your twitter handle yes it's i ramnik i r a m n e e k okay perfect well thank you once again for coming on thank you everyone for listening to the show we want to remind listeners that Brett and i are not financial advisors anything we say or discuss here on chicha money is not formal advice we are, however, general partners at Arch Capital, and clients do have a position in the security discussed in this podcast. We are may or may not in the future, though. Make sure. May or may not in the future, but we we are IAC shareholders at the at the time that this was recorded. So keep that in mind, and uh, it's not formal advice or a recommendation. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you, Ramnik, again for coming on the show. We'll see you all next time. Hey, Simon, we wanted to ask you a few questions about seven investing so listeners could get an idea of what they're getting. What inspired you to start the company and what exactly is seven investing? Well, hey, Ryan, thanks again for having me. You know, we, from years of working in the investing industry, it was inspired by conversations with people that would just always have kind of the same negative perception of the stock market, right? It's it's too hard, or I don't have time for this, or this is stacked against me. And those conversations kind of led me to say, hey, we need to create a site that actually does inspire people to say, you can take control of your financial future. You can invest in stocks, you can find good stocks to buy and hold for long periods of time. And at the end of the day, too, we know that everybody is different. Um, we don't believe that there is one stock that fits for everyone, right? Maybe you're a, a dividend loving, you know, paycheck cashing uh, income investor that might want an option that's going to be a lower risk dividend paying stock, especially right now with the economy being what it is. Uh, and then other people might say, hey, you know, I'm ready to hold on for 20 or 30 years. I want to take some swings for the fences. Let's go after those high growth opportunities. And so I, I said, you know, this would be something that would be even more fun rather than just doing it educational and, as, and by myself. I said, what if I brought together a team of seven advisors, all with a diverse background and a diverse perspective of the stock market? So we could uncover more stones and look at a bunch of different stocks with a bunch of different investing styles and a whole bunch of different industries. 
And so seven investing is, is kind of the, uh, the genesis of all of those that we started in, uh, in March of 2020. And we said, let's look at a whole bunch of different stocks. Let's do the legwork of the analysis and let's present our seven favorite actionable ideas every month for investors to choose from. And let's start the conversation about which of these stocks is right for you and which one might be the right fit for your portfolio, knowing that investing is a very personal thing. All right. If you are a subscriber of seven investing, what do you get? Can you give an overview of what subscribers get? On the very first of every month, Brett, we release our seven new recommendations. So we are uh, coming up on October 1st here, at least in the recording of this. And you know, on October 1st, we'll release seven recommendation reports. Some of them will be low risk. Some of them will be high risk. Some of them will be biotech. Some of them will be financial services. We run the full gamut. And as a member, you get immediate access to all of the new reports. But you also get access to all of our old recommendations as well. We track all of them in real time on our scorecard at 7investing.com slash recommendations. And we also provide company updates on all of those previous recommendations as well. We check in on how things are going. And sometimes we even see red flags that we think people should be aware of. There's risks for any opportunity at the time that you recommend it. And sometimes it's really willing, it's really, it's really needed for investors to kind of understand the risk and reward relationship. And then the last part of it is in addition to issuing new recommendations and providing updates on them is we know that this is a long-term journey. We know that investing is something that we want to take uh, years, if not decades, to accomplish whatever we want to get to as, as the end goal. And so we always, every month, make it a point to be very available for our subscribers to ask us questions. We have a members-only call uh, right in the middle of every single month. We have a community discussion forum that we that we have available 24-7 to not only talk to our advisors, but also other investors. I think that's one of the key differentiators for 7investing is that, you know, we know this is a long-term journey. We know it's a very personal thing. We know they're going to have questions along the way. We don't want to just broadcast stock picks and disappear. We want to be here with you uh, throughout this entire journey. And you mentioned, so seven recommendations each month. Sometimes those might be repeats, but obviously there's a lot of companies now in the seven investing universe. So how do members get a grasp on the the advisor's conviction around certain ideas? Like which ones do do they are do they have a way of knowing which uh whether advisors like certain ones more? That's the most common question we've gotten actually since we started is what's your favorite ideas right now? You know, we've done the diligence on almost 200 unique companies now and put them on the scorecard and people would say, hey, this is too much to keep up with. How do I even know where to start? And so we've kind of uh, evolved as, as a company. You know, one thing that we've started doing is best buys every month. Each advisor gets to pick any of their or another advisor's previous recommendations and put the flag on it that says, this is my best buy for October. And we publish those for subscribers. The other thing that we've started doing is issuing conviction ratings on companies that are also right there on the scorecard. So if you see a previous recommendation, we go everything from potential sell, which is the most negative flag we can put on a stock, to strong buy, which is the most positive bullish flag that we can mark things with. And you can filter through all of those to really quickly see, here's some of our favorite opportunities. And we've taken this even one step further now, Ryan, which is we've created a strong buy portfolio where every quarter now we've gone ahead and self-selected as a team through a pretty methodical process, our 20 favorite ideas, our 20 highest scoring companies 
that we've collectively come up with, our favorites of the entire scorecard. And we put these into what we're calling a strong buy portfolio that we publish each quarter, also available as an added benefit for no extra charge for seven investing members. All right, last question here. What does it cost to become a seven investing subscriber? Uh, and as a you know, we'll talk about, or we have talked about before, if you're a listener, use code money to get $100 off your annual subscription. That's right. Yeah, we do have a monthly option. You know, you can come in and check out the entire scorecard for a month just to see what you're looking at for $49 a month. Uh, but our most popular plan is actually the annual option because it's at a discount to that. Uh, in fact, we've got a discount on the discount, like you mentioned, Brett. Uh, $3.99 for the year is our is our annual option price. But if you use money, the Chit Chat Money promo code, it's down to $300. So you're basically getting the, the subscription for half price if you sign up for the annual offer with that promo code. That does not expire after the first year. As long as you remain an active subscriber, you get to lock in that $100 off a year benefit. All right. Well, as he mentioned, use that code MONEY. Thanks for joining us, Simon. Thanks very much for having me.